Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June 6, 2013. This is episode 1144 of the Survival Podcast. It's Thursday, and today we have a gentleman named John Pugliano who will be on in just a bit from a company called InvestableWealth.com. Today's show is going to be about money, investing, building your financial future. I know some people don't think that's a survival topic, but the last I checked, having a strong financial life was a great way to survive the everyday world. And trust me, folks, if we ever do have a true economic collapse, you're going to want to have as much wealth built up in advance of it and protected from it as possible. John and I are going to talk about that from the angle of Thomas Stanley's work, The Millionaire Next Door. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is the Free State Project. You know, the Free State Project is the only... Uh, sponsor that I have that's not really a sponsor. They're kind of like a reverse sponsor. And what I mean by that is they don't pay to be on the show. They don't pay to be on the site. It's part of my philanthropy. I've actually given them that slot. I've done that for about a year and a half now. Uh, we'll decide whether they keep it at the end of this year. Honestly, I think two years. Maybe it's time to share the uh, share the love a little bit with another worthy organization. But uh, uh, for two years anyway, I've committed to sponsoring them and letting people know about their work. And in doing so, I want people to understand that the Free State Project is a way for you to vote with your feet, to uh, to say I've had enough of wherever I'm at, and join 20,000 fellow patriots in New Hampshire with the goal of making New Hampshire the freest state in the Union. You can learn more, and even if you're not going to go to New Hampshire, you can support their work by going to freestateproject.org. Next up today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Might shock you, but you'll get Berkey water filtration systems and all the stuff that goes with them, like filters, if you already have a Berkey. I mean, come on. I mean, what else would you expect to get from the Berkey guy but Berkey stuff? Well, you can also get all other really great types of things to help your self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and preparedness goals. Uh, Long-term storage food and a lot of other really great stuff, and you'll find it all at his website, directive21.com. But when it comes to Berkey's, I mean... Why would you go to the Berkey guy? I mean, everybody knows a Berkey's a great product, but isn't a Berkey a Berkey? Not so much. If you go to the Berkey guy, you're going to one of the number one distributors for Berkey in the world. That means you're going to get some of the best pricing. Absolutely insanely good customer service. Uh, a guy that doesn't sleep. I don't think he does, man, because all he's doing is making sure his customers are happy every time, all the time. And do you want to be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy, the guy that started a distributorship like yesterday and then rented a 10-foot table at a gun show when you could have gone to the source, the Berkey guy? If you want, don't want to be that guy, buy from the Berkey guy at directive21.com, and that is directive and the numbers 21.com. Best way to visit the Free State Project, the Berkey guy, or any of our sponsors is go to the survivalpodcast.com first. Click on their banners in the right-hand margin, then you'll know you're dealing with an actual sponsor and not some sort of brand pirate, because there are brand pirates out there. Uh, next up, want to remind you guys about walkingtofreedom.com. Let's say you like the Free State Project, think it's a great idea, and you're like, New Hampshire's too far, New Hampshire's too cold, I don't like New Hampshire, whatever it is, it's just not the place for you. 
great. Get out of New York, Illinois, California, and the other states that have made the naughty list. These are the states that are the most fiscally irresponsible, and they are the states that have done the most to oppress the freedoms of their citizens. And these are the states that we have collectively elected to be on the naughty list. We're finalizing the naughty list, exactly what it will look like. I'd love you to come by and vote. Just go to walkingtofreedom.com. There's a board for organization and, and structure. Click on that. The first post you will see there is uh, for voting on the final format of the naughty list. Please do that if you haven't done so. Voting closes soon. I want all voices to be heard. And the more participation we get, folks, this is key. We got well over a thousand votes on the naughty list. We don't have anywhere near that many votes on what the final naughty list would look like. The more participants, the more valid the results will be seen by the outsiders who don't know anything about it. So our, remember, our goal here is over several years to create thousands of human interest stories about citizens who've said enough to oppressive states. To do that, we need a great start. So I need your help. If you haven't done so, please go by walkingtofreedom.com, set up an account, and vote. And uh, let your voice be heard. And remember, you don't have to be walking to be part of Walk to Freedom. You can help others by telling them about your state and helping them meet people, find jobs, things like that, including helping people realize, you know what, This isn't the state for me. Whenever I talk about this, I hear people say, but what if all the people from California, they want all the banned guns, and then they go there for a job, and then they bring their stuff with... That's what the point of this is, so that people find the place that's most fitting for what they're looking for in freedom within the republic. Part of a republic is freedom of movement. Voting with your feet is a last act of rebellion. And the last and ultimate vote that a citizen can count outside of a pure and true revolution. That's what Walking to Freedom is about. It's about preventing that type of a day from coming by using the republic the way that our founders intended. With that, I have everything wrapped up except one last thing. If you'd like to support the show, if you'd like to support the work that we're doing, you can join our Members Support Brigade to help support the work we do. It'll cost you about 18.3 cents an episode. And uh, you'll be supporting the work we do. That's one of the big things about it. But here's the other side of it. It ain't charity and it ain't like PBS. We don't send you a crappy handbag. We give you discounts to over 40 different vendors of stuff you're probably buying every year anyway. And if you use the discounts that we provide, your membership will pay for itself many times over over the years. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, and first responders like paramedics, EMTs, and firefighters All of you guys qualify for a service discount. Just send me an email, put service discount in the subject line, and tell me who you are and what you're doing. Or if you're prior service and did your work in the past, tell me who you are and what you did. Just give me one or two sentences. I don't need 20 paragraphs. I won't read that far. I just need to know that you actually fulfilled the role of a first responder uh, or a law enforcement officer or military personnel. And tell me just a little bit about that so I know you're not full of crap. With that... I've got the housekeeping wrapped up, and I'd like to say uh, with that, hey, John, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I've been listening to the show for a couple years, and it's a real pleasure to be on as a guest. Well, I'm glad to have you here. We're here to talk about investing uh, from a somewhat contrarian view, but uh, not completely, because one of I think one of the influencing things in your whole philosophy is a well-known book, a book I read many, many years ago that I, I found very, uh, very useful. Uh, called The Millionaire Next Door. Is, is that the case? That's correct, yeah. I, I was lucky enough to read that book the year it was published, which was like 1996, and it really it really changed my way of thinking and, and had a major impact on where I am today. 
And uh, I mean, what was the biggest thing in there that kind of hit you? You know, up, up to that time, so I read that book in like 96. I was 35 years old. I had been in and out of the military a couple times. Uh, I had worked for a lot of big corporations. And I, I, had, uh, I had had ingrained in me somewhere along the way that being successful was kind of like a white-collar career. You know, you wanted, you wanted the security of working for a big corporation. Um, I really had originally had started my career in the military. I went in the Marines when I was uh, right out of high school. In fact, I'm coming up on my 44th anniversary here that I went to uh, uh, Paris Island. Excuse me, I'm making myself older than I am. 30, 34th uh, anniversary to Paris Island. I'll be in two days. I, I went two weeks after graduation and uh, spent four years enlisted in the Marines and, and got out and went, went to school, went to college, studied science. Uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I had studied science. I knew being in the Marines gave me the discipline that I didn't have before I went in. So uh, I was ready to, to, you know, to go learn, but I really didn't know what I wanted to do for a career. And that kind of stayed with me for a long time. Um, I actually had gone, while I was in, in university, I uh, needed some extra money for school and signed up with Army ROTC and ended up spending three years as an officer with the Army, uh, which was not a good decision. Um, but, uh, you know, so after like seven years of active duty, a bunch of reserve time, um, you know, several years working for some big corporations, I was just kind of stuck, and I was in this, uh, uh, you know, dead-end thing in my life where I felt like a, uh, I just felt like a, uh, you know, square peg in a round hole. I, I really didn't fit into corporate America. I didn't fit into the whole bureaucracy, but I, but that was ingrained in me that that's, that's kind of how you got ahead. You, you had a white-collar job. You, you, you went for security. And when I read uh, The Millionaire Next Door, it really changed my way of thinking. It made me think more about being an entrepreneur, made me think more about um, you know, the people that really had wealth. Uh, many of them were just the, the low-profile low, um, guy that, that lived in the neighborhood that you really didn't know was, was wealthy. Yeah, I mean, I, I would completely agree with that. I think that there's a, a tremendous amount of wealth that's been built through these, the, these concepts uh, in America today, uh, in no small part to the book, but I think there's a lot of people that kind of, fall into this line of thinking on their own. Um, now, you have some concepts that you you really uh, kind of like, say, go, and be, go beyond uh, the Dave Ramsey thing of just get out of debt. And I'm not a fan of Ramsey as an investment advisor. I think he's magnificent on debt. Um, but your three points here are, one, learn a marketable skill, two, get paid for achievement, not by the hour, and three, develop passive income. And before we discuss those, I'm kind of asking you to let me know if this is where I got this from. I don't remember because I've read so much in the past. But I remember, and I think this was from The Millionaire Next Door. And it was something that guided me from about 96 on. So this seems right. I remember reading, never take a job for what it pays. Take it for what you can learn from it. Is that out of there as well? I, no, I don't think that that comes from. Uh, he knows from where the hell Thomas I got Stanley. That, yeah, that, that's uh, that's good advice. That came from. That's more of a. Uh, um, yeah, I can't. I can't think. You think where that came from? I really thought that's where that came from, but I, maybe it was. Uh, maybe it would have been Harvey McKay. I'm not sure, but I mean that was something I always did, and I think that goes right in hand though. Uh, with getting marketable skills and getting paid for achievements, I think that if you're taking jobs that way, that's where you end up. So. Kind of what is that? What is that? Those those three major steps all about. Let's start out with learning a marketable skill. So most people today, the way they're going to learn a marketable skill is spend eighty thousand dollars in four years in college. Yeah, and, and I definitely wouldn't recommend that. Um, 
you know, kind of, and let me step back a minute too and talk about the millionaire next door. So I don't want to misread the leader or uh, mis misguide the listeners. the The book itself doesn't really tell you a whole lot about how to build wealth. It tells you, you know, more about the lifestyles of the people that are wealthy. So it'll change maybe your opinion of you thinking, oh, you know, this celebrity, you know, celebrities are all wealthy, or doctors or attorneys are all wealthy. Uh, you know, Thomas Stanley talks more about how, hey, it's the guy, it's the plumbing contractor. It's the guy that has learned to, you know, keep keep his expenses low. He lives well within his means. He um, he he, uh, he invests well. He he spends more time building his wealth than he does um, worried about his social status. So he's not wearing a Rolex. You know, he's probably not driving a Jaguar. Um, and and he also raises his his kids to be self sufficient and be on their own. So he's not so he's not paying for you know eighty a hundred thousand dollar college debt. Well, yeah. So, so jumping back into this, so as, as far as that that learning a skill, I, I call it kind of an apprenticeship stage. I think of the uh, I think of the way things were done in the past, and, and they were probably done really well. It, it, you know, you learned a skill, and maybe you learned to be a carpenter, or you learned uh, you know you apprentice with someone for five, seven years. And I've kind of taken that model to heart, and I've looked at, at my life and other people that have been successful, and it seems like that five to seven year period really makes sense. So when I think about people being financially independent, I really think that Anybody can get, I don't want to say wealthy, but they can get definitely, you know, better than they are. They can get, they can get very close, if not financially independent, in 20 or 21 years, three phases of seven-year periods. And, uh, you know, for people that don't believe that, you, you look at all the immigrants that come to our country. My, my grandparents were immigrants. I know your, your uh, grandparents were immigrants. Um, throughout the history of our con- country, people have come here. They don't speak the language. They have absolutely no money. They got the clothes on their back. And yet, within a generation, uh, many of them can be extremely wealthy and, and others are at least comfortably middle class. So uh, those of us that are fortunate enough to be born here and, and are, you know, already have some skills can, uh, can definitely make the most out of our lives. Um, so as far as going to college, I, I think in our society, college is very important just because it's, it's the prerequisite. It's, it's the... Um, the stage gate that people expect you to pass through. Uh, you, you may not learn anything there, but people expect you to, to have the degree. <laughs> so, so from that point of view, you know, if, if you want to go work for some big company, you probably do have to have a degree. Obviously, if you want to go to med school, you have to have a, a bachelor's degree before you get into it. But for, for a lot of careers, I, I don't think you need it. I think people are wasting their times. I think just learning good skills, tech skills, are, are more valuable. And if you are going to go to a university... And the advice I've given my kids is, you know, study something that's that's that is that's uh, viable, something that you're going to be able to get a job in. And, and you obviously don't know when you're 18 or 19 exactly what you want to do with your career, but you can at least know that, you know, maybe being a history major may be interesting to you, but you're probably not going to be a history teacher. Um, and there's just not as many of those jobs. You're studying, you know, 15th century English literature. That should be more of a hobby, right? That's not going to be what you want to go spend, uh, you know. I mean, unless you want to be a teacher. You know, if you want to be a teacher, that's one thing. And there's, there's, there's a place for teaching those things. But generally speaking, teaching doesn't pay that well. That's right. And, and, and even if you do want to be a teacher, you don't want to come out with $150,000 in debt. Um, I, I, my, my oldest daughter is actually a teacher. I tried to steer her away from that, but that's what her passion was. That's what she wanted to do. And, uh, and she actually she said to me when she was... Uh, um, I guess a year or two in the school, she said, Dad, I, I know you don't want me to do this, but I really want to be a teacher. You, you had always taught me uh, 
be, be what I can be great at, and I can be a fabulous teacher. So, you know, I couldn't argue with that, uh, but she went to a very reasonably priced university. Uh, in fact, because she wasn't, she was very smart, uh, she wanted to go into teaching. She got a lot of scholarships, academic scholarships. She paid for, uh, you know, her first two years on her own and got uh, academic scholarships for her last two. So she's been teaching for four or five years now and, and absolutely loves it. So I don't want to discourage people from that, but you have to know what you're getting into. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, learning a marketable skill can, can be, college can be part of that. And I think there are certain areas that it's really the only path. Like you mentioned being a doctor. I, I, I got to admit, I really don't want a guy doctoring me, especially for surgery and stuff like that, to learn out of, you know, his, his basement or something like that. Or an engineer that's going to design sophisticated systems. There's a place for engineering school and things like that. But there's a lot of other opportunities out there that get into more of a hands-on, this is how you do things skill set. And those offer a lot of really decent um, entrepreneurial opportunities if you have the, the business head to go along with them, right? Absolutely. And in fact, you, you mentioned doctors and engineers. So let's talk about them for a minute. Um, going back to The Millionaire Next Door, and I, I recently uh, went back and reread the newer version, so I want to check the numbers because some of the numbers have changed over the years, but this, this, this statistic pretty much still holds. Most people think that you know, physicians or doctors are, are very well paid and, and therefore very affluent. And, and although they may be well paid, they're not necessarily the, the career that produces the most millionaires. Um, engineers are actually really at the top of the list when you look at uh, uh, college graduates. Engineers do extremely well, and particularly certain types of engineers. An engineer, a mining engineer, someone that either studies like uh, directly mining engineering or geological engineering, they're ten times as likely to be a millionaire than your average doctor. And wow. and, and that, uh, if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense, and it apply to what we talked to about you know people that don't even go to college. First of all, engineers are you know they are paid well. Uh, but, but they don't make, generally don't make the, the several hundred thousand or, or more dollars that a, a doctor makes. But a mining engineer, he's not going to live in, you know, downtown Chicago or Manhattan or something, right? These mines are out kind of in the middle of nowhere. Maybe they're in the Midwest. They're in western Pennsylvania or someplace. So his housing costs are very low. He, um, he probably didn't go to Stanford or something to, you know, he probably went to, um, you know, West Virginia University or something to get his degree, so, so he, he paid a reasonable amount for his degree. He's living in a community where housing is very reasonable. He's living among the people that he works with every day, so he's probably not really a flashy person. He's not wearing a Rolex to watch. He's wearing his jeans and driving his pickup truck to work every day, and those guys build wealth, and, and they're very happy. If you look at the, the happiness index of, of uh, engineers that are in those kind of fields, they're extremely happy, much happier than dentists and attorneys and people in those other fields. Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's a huge case for happiness. I, I know that my career path eventually took its, its path through some executive-level positions, and it was always what I believed I really wanted to do, to be the you know regional VP or even a COO. I did both of those jobs. And... I really thought, you know, I had made it. But I have to admit that there was probably never a time in my life that I was more miserable, not with my home life, but with my career uh, than those times. And being highly paid didn't make it less miserable. It made it easier to accept the misery, but it didn't make the misery go away. They say money can't buy happiness, and I think there's 
fact and fiction there. I think if, if, if somebody gave me $40 million, just gave it to me, no conditions, I could buy a crap ton of happiness. But simply buy, being paid well and then having to do something you don't want to do, it, it's a pretty miserable existence. That's right, yes. And that's why I look at why I don't really fit well into a, an upper management, executive management job at, at a major corporation because I, I just don't like that lifestyle. Um, I, I'm much more independent. I, I value my independence. I, I like to, uh, to be free. And that's kind of what led me to wanting to be uh, financially independent. It, it was about the independence. It was about the freedom. It really wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the money per se. It was not things I could buy. It was, it was buying my freedom, being able to live where I wanted to, being able to, to have the type of work I wanted to do. Um, you know, if I, if I, if you're locked into a job where it, if you're, you know, you look at these scandals and things that are going on right now in the, uh, in the Obama administration, you know, if you're working for the IRS and you're seven years away from getting your pension or something, um, and you're asked to do something unethical, you may do it anyways, right? You may feel pressure from the organization, from the corporation, from the bureaucracy you work in. And, and even though you may not want to do it, even though you're an ethical person, you may lapse to that side because, hey, you know, I want to retire. I, got, I have a nice income. I got medical benefits, all these things. If you're financially independent, you know, someone tells you to do something unethical, something you don't believe in, tell them to, no, go pound salt. You're your own man. You couldn't be more correct because once I, I establish TSP to the level it's at now, when I'm asked to do something that just doesn't jive with me, it, there's – there's no damn. I wish I didn't have to do this. There's no ethical, you know, dilemma. There's. It's just no. I'm not doing that, you know. Exactly. And if I do want to do something, even if it's maybe not the smartest business move, but I don't think it's going to sink the ship, so to speak. And it, it's it's what I think is right. Then I just do it, you know. And I don't have to have a board meeting with 52 different people to discuss why we can't do what we should be doing. And I I don't have to sit across the table from a guy who I would and, and pretend to be friends with him when I was a guy I would never even want to spend a minute with if I didn't have to. All of that just goes away. Right. And and that's the difference between working for an entrepreneurial type company and some type of bureaucracy, whether it's a big corporation or whether it's the government. Um, and, and those are the those are the things that that's, that came to life for me starting in around uh, 1996. I mean, I I knew some things didn't jive before, but I really didn't understand, um, you know, the, the the pressure you could be in by by not being financially independent. And um, again, so that that really changed my life when I learned learned those things and learned that if you want to be your own person, you really have to be an entrepreneur. You, you look at this the the, the last. Uh, I don't want to go all politics here. I already talked about some things here, but you know, looking back to like the last election cycle, I was so furious at guys like Newt Gingrich that were uh, really bringing down Romney because Romney was wealthy. You know, I can think of a lot of reasons not to like Romney, but his money isn't one of them. Uh, I, I don't look down on people that have more money than me. I, I aspire to have money. Again, not so I can buy things, but so I so I can buy, be independent, so I can help other people, so I can. Um, you know, make a better world. If I'm poor, I can't. I can't. Uh, you know, I know your your show. You talk about things like permaculture and things. If you don't have the income, you can't invest in in those systems or permaculture or these different things to improve your life. No, I completely agree with that because I go to these events and they're full of young people that are 20 years old and they're they're upset and angry that they don't have access to land yet. How do I get access to land? Well, get a job. Get two jobs, get three jobs, work your ass off, and earn some money, and then you can get some land. You don't just get some land because you figured out how to plant a tree. 
And I think that is a big part of there's an anti-establishment movement out there that is I actually find with our young people very encouraging, but it's very misdirected. It, it, it goes off on a, on, a, on a side trip that leads to doing nothing and expecting something, or even being willing to work, but not being willing to work in kind of that apprenticeship mode, right? If you if you want certain things, then you have to use your labor initially to raise capital and be smart with that capital so that you can then invest it and get the return on that. You don't just get a piece of land because you want one. And I think that there's that's one example, but there's a lot of people out there that think, well, if I only had this or only had that, and the first step on the path is, well, you need to figure out how, how long it's going to take you to do it, what it's going to cost, how do you shorten the pathway, and get, get doing it and get hitting it. That's right. Our youth today have a reason to be angry, but they're misdirecting their anger at the wrong thing. They're blaming like the free market, and the free market is actually what's going to set them free. Yeah, I, I couldn't put that better myself. Um, that's absolutely the case. So let's 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 talk about that apprenticeship thing. It, you know, first of all, if you are guy again, I don't want to downplay university. I've got I've got a couple degrees and things, but the the degrees I got really aren't isn't where I got educated. I educated myself. Um, and I'm encouraging my kids that have the aptitude, I'm encouraging them to go to, to go to school to get their degree. So I don't want to downplay the degree, but if you're going to go get a degree, go be an engineer, go study computer science, go you know, study um, network securities. You, know, you can look out there and see what products and services people need, and that's what, you want to, that's what you want to figure out how to fulfill. And if you have to go to a university to learn those things, do it, and if you can learn them on your own, that's even better. You know, I mean, you're very Internet savvy, and I, I know your listeners are as well. You can learn almost anything. Between Google and YouTube, you can teach yourself how to do almost anything. So I, I think over the next five years, we're going to see education really change drastically anyways. I think education has to change. I think that there's a ton of people out there with business degrees or uh, marketing degrees and things like that that – they don't have an advanced degree in it. They didn't go to like a top school for it. It's just kind of a general degree with, and they give it a name because you don't generally see people coming out with a degree. What did they used to call it when you had a degree in nothing and they still called it a degree? Um, like, uh, what was it? Some of the L. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah, whatever it was. They don't have that anymore. So now everybody's got at least a business or communications degree or something like that. And then that person ends up for the rest of their life never going past a middle management position. Um, working in some sort of an office setting, doing a job that, honestly, you could have trained a high school student to do. And the reason the employer will hire the college graduate over the high school graduate, and I know this for a fact, talking to entrepreneurs that ran companies like this and did it, there's plenty of them out there, and at least I know they can finish something. Right. right? It's, so, it's, it's a screening process. So for, for that level of a job, investing forty to $50,000 in your education – doesn't make any sense in an age where we can beam that education to people all over the world today. That's right. And, and that's not like being a doctor where you really got to know the subdescending vena cava from the upper reset. And I'm making shit up here, guys. I don't know this, you know, upper receding vena cava, right? It's not that critical. It really isn't. And most of what a person learns in college for that type of a career, if you gave them a test that they got an A on two years ago, they'd flunk it. Yes. So I don't get the point. So I think that, you're right, that has to change. This country, you know, you look, you look at some of the great things that happened in this country before 1950. That was all done with eighth, eighth, 
uh, great education or less. You know, the, the, the things that were built, the skyscrapers, the bridges, the, the, all the infrastructure, people didn't have PhDs and master's degrees. That was built with one guy having an engineering degree and a thousand guys that, that maybe had a, an eighth grade education. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly some of the most amazing achievements in the industrial age were run by a single or a small team of engineers, and a lot of everybody else working there didn't even have a high school uh, diploma. Yep. And a lot of those guys actually became pretty good second-tier engineers. Like, they'd have the professionally trained guy look over their shoulder at any decisions they make that kind of kept things, but they became very good at what they do. Um, there's, there's even places, because I talk about permaculture a lot, out in the deserts, uh, the southwestern United States where swales were put in, not for permaculture reasons, but basically to keep dust off the highway. And Bill Mollison was walking through them in a video in the 80s and said, these were good engineers that did this. This has been here for 50 years and it still works. And you know damn well the people that put that in were people probably working for the Civilian Conservation Corps, and most of them didn't have a degree or a diploma, let alone a degree. Yes, that's right. And I guess we've lost a lot of that. Yeah, you know, and it's because edu- education is, has dumbed us down. I mean, let, let's take a take a, a young man right now. Say he's 18 years old. He doesn't want to go to school. He's not sure what he wants to do, um, but he's ambitious and he's a hard worker. If he looks around his community, and, and again, this is something where uh, if, if you listen to the principles that Earl Nightingale taught uh, many years ago, I mean, they, they really hold up today as well. Uh, you don't have to uh, go live somewhere else to, to achieve your dreams. You're probably going to be able to do it right where you're at. So look around your own community. See what products and services people need and want, what they're buying, what they're paying for, and then look at your skills and abilities and try and align those with what people need. And a lot of people say follow your passions, do what you love, and I, I agree with that. that. That's true. You don't want to do something you hate. But at the same time, when you're young, you, don't, you, know, you haven't experienced enough. You don't know what you love. Uh, you know, you... <laughs> <laughs> Until you try something, you don't know if you like it. And, and I guarantee if you go ask any 50-year-old, uh, whether it's a stay-at-home mom or whether it's a, um, you know, a guy, a, a plumbing contractor, if they're successful, they love what they do. Right? They, they, love, they love what they do because they're successful at it. And you'll, so you'll learn, you'll learn to love things that you're good at. So, uh, so as a young man or young woman, see, see what the market needs and go do it. You don't need a college education for everything. Um, I, I have met plenty of people that, uh, particularly in the trades, have done extremely well. I mean, the, the, the blue-collar millionaire is, is alive and well out there. Uh, you look at things like uh, you know, car maintenance, uh, whether mechanics or auto body, um, uh, lawn, lawn care services, um, contractors, people that build things, carpenters, electricians. I was talking to an electrician the other day. He said, uh, you know, right now they work back to the building boom again, so you know, they can't find enough electricians to do all they work, all the work that needs done. So these these skills pay very well. You have to work. You have to be intelligent. But if you're ambitious, you can go out as a young person, and you know, depending upon where you live, some places you may have to you know join a union and, and be an apprentice that way, or you may have to go to a technical school. But I mean, even if you just want to work in an auto body shop, you could start out with no skills and get hired at the lowest job they have there. Uh, which incidentally is why like, things like the minimum wage are, are so detrimental to people with, with no skills because you, you can't afford to pay someone you know, $9, 10 $15 an hour if they don't have a skill. So every, you know, every time they raise, raise that minimum wage, 
uh, the employer's payroll taxes go up, and, and he's not going to hire. He's not going to give a chance to the guy that doesn't have any skills. Hey, let me tell you, the, the, the argument people will make is, okay, well, that guy comes in there, and in 60 days, he's, he's fairly well-trained, and he can do a job, and he deserves a raise. And a lot of times, without a minimum wage, he'll never get one. My, my response to that was, if it wasn't locked in that everybody paid at least X, if that guy developed his skill and became good at what he was doing and was more valuable than you were paying him, if you don't give him a raise, your competitor will. You're going to lose him, absolutely. It, and the market will fix that shit, and it will fix it fast. Because I know as an entrepreneur, the, the one place I never really did as well as I wished I could have was in building staffs. And if I could find a really good person, I would hire them. And if I, had to, if they were, if I believe that person would put money into my business and I did not have a position for them, I would create one. And the hardest thing as a startup is to have enough cash flow that you can pay those good people well enough to keep them from going somewhere else. And I believe it, it works that way at all levels. It, and it, that kind of transitions us to our next thing because we spent a lot of time on the first one. Once you have some skill set, your next thing is get paid for your achievement, not by the hour. That's right. I, I you know, And still stand, I guess, on that, that uh, car maintenance thing. I know guys that paint cars. Uh, and these are just employees, but they're, they're people that paint cars. They do an extremely good job at it. They're making $100,000 or more painting a car. You know, you don't need a Ph.D. to know how to paint a car. Um, you know, so once you get through that entrepreneur or once you get through that uh, apprenticeship phase and you learn the skill, then you, you need to start thinking about, so now I'm trained, now I have the abilities. How do I make money? How do I monetize this? And, and uh, a good way to do it... and. And again, if you worry, another thing you want to do when you when you go work, when you start out as an employee working for someone, you want to work for a guy that's an entrepreneur. You don't want to work for a, for a bureaucrat. Um, you want to work for a guy that really wants to make money because he knows that he'll make money by you making money, making money for him. And you can get to a point where you're really good, and he knows he he doesn't want to lose you. He doesn't want you to go to a competitor. He may work with you to set you up in business. He may bring you in as a partner to his company. That's, that's the quickest way for someone without a lot of credentials to build a lot of wealth fast. Now, if you imagine you're, you're a guy that starts out in a body shop, just sanding down cars, you do that for six months, you get better at it, you, know, you start learning other skills, maybe you learn how to uh, you know, putty up the job, and then you get to, to be a, a paint prepper, and then a couple years you get into where you're really painting the cars well, and now you've been doing it seven years, you're making $100,000. Well, at that point, most people are going out blowing their money, right? They're going out and buy, they're going to buy a big boat. They're going to buy a, a big truck to tow their big boat. They're going to move to a bigger house. And that, you know, that, we get trapped in all this well, debt. I did. Yeah, you get trapped in all I, this I took a different path than auto body, and I went into more of an executive role. It's exactly what I did. I got to do a bunch of debt, and I bought a bunch of stuff. Yeah, and that's where the millionaire mind comes into play. Is you don't, you don't want to buy a bunch of stuff either just to satisfy your own desires or to get social status. You want to look at building wealth. And so that, that kid now that's been doing this kind of crappy job for seven years, he's finally making really good money, he's an expert at painting cars, he needs to start looking at that business model side of it and, and going to his employer, the guy that owns a shop, and saying, hey, you know I'm really good at this, I want to own my own shop someday, how can I work with you? you know, do you want to retire in 10 years? Uh, do you want to open up another shop the next town over, you know, 15 miles? Uh, you know, those, those type of conversations are what he wants to have with his employer to say, how can I work towards that? And the guy's not going to give him that tomorrow. I mean, again, no. he's going to have to work, but he's going to have to work towards it. And if he's working for the right guy, that'll happen. If he's not, he needs to go find that right guy. 
And it's often easier in that situation to find the right guy than try to convince the guy you've worked for for seven years that you are the guy to do it with. Absolutely. It's sad, but it's true. But And this is something I think people need to learn about negotiating a salary, a position, benefits, anything. You will never have more leverage than the day before they hire you. You absolutely will never have more leverage than the day before they hire you, unless you do get to that end game with that guy you're talking about, and he gets it. But otherwise, if you've been there six months, they feel like, okay, you're employed, right? Where are you going to go? There's a little bit of attitude there. The day before they hire you, right, they're trying to recruit you, not retain you. And that's when you have the most leverage on negotiating terms, salary, commissions, incentives, all of that stuff. Yes, and, that, and that's why, uh, particularly if you're in corporate America, you're better switching jobs every three to five years. Yeah, yeah, or less. <laughs> or, or less, or less. Yeah, I've done some of that, <laughs> or less. Um, but and you know, those entrepreneurs though that are gonna they're gonna work with somebody, they're hard to find, but they are out there. Again, I've met them, and uh, they're they're all looking for an exit strategy. I mean, you think about a guy that's say in his fifties or sixties, you know, he's built this business from the ground up. Uh, his kids may or may not want to go into it. He he wants to retire someday. He wants to figure out who he's going to sell that business to. If he's got a, you know, basically, if you have a business that's worth less than probably five, three to five million dollars, it's really hard to find the right person to buy it because not enough people have the capital to buy it. And so, if you can have an employee or a couple employees that want to buy you out, that's that's his best exit strategy. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'll tell you in the. Uh, manufacturer's rep business, it is a very common thing that someone will go to work for a rep firm, technology, many different sectors, Where and just for folks maybe that don't know what the, that really is. So a manufacturer's rep firm would be a company that maybe has five or six manufacturers whose products they represent. They're like a remote sales force. And the people that build and run those businesses, you know, those folks used to work for me, and some of them that worked for me, we're making 10 times what I was, even though they technically worked for me. The one guy had a wine cellar worth more than my house. And a lot of times the employees of that business, the very employees of that, that you know, they'll have a protected territory and these product lines and things like that. They'll eventually become very, very savvy, very, very good at what they do. And the person that founded the rep firm is ready to, to cash in. They're done. They've worked their ass off for 20 years. And the easiest thing for them to do is turn around and sell their business to the people in the business that want to buy it, many of whom have built up quite a bit of capital. And as far as getting a business loan to buy the business, it ends up being easy for them because they can go to a loan officer looking for a small business loan for the differential and say, here's the capital I have. I've been in this business for 15 years. I've been the operations manager of this business for 15 years. And it's it's a lot easier than going out to a small business loan officer and saying, I'd like a loan, please, to start a business that I've never done before. Right. So that, that pathway is in a lot of places. And it's so much smarter than going out and buying a franchise because, because you, you know, you've worked your way up in the business. You know the business. You don't have to spend all that extra money to buy a franchise for somebody to teach you how to do it. Um, so that's definitely the best way to do it. And, and, uh, and, again, you don't have to wait for the guy to, to want to cash out. There are a lot of people that are, that are young that want to grow their business and they're looking for the right person that can help them grow their company. Uh, again, where let's say, okay, I – you're you're a great employee. You're a great worker. You you go above and beyond what needs to be done. I'm gonna I'm gonna set you up in business in the next town over or the next region or somehow vertically integrate my company. Right? You know I've uh, uh, I, I have the paint shop business going on here. 
let's uh, let's set you up as a, as as a paint salesman. You know, I have the capital, you have the experience. I'll set you up in that business. You sell paint to me, but then I still get a you know that that employer would still get a percentage of the person's business and you, or, or you know percentage of the sales, and you do it on a sliding scale. And you know, again, you're not you're not in a huge bargaining position uh, when you don't have the money or when you don't have the skills. But the, the more you know, the more you can negotiate, and you can. Uh, if you're dealing with an honest person, you can come to a, a good a- agreement between the two of you so that over time you get a higher and a higher percentage of that business because you don't want to be paid by the hour. You know, it doesn't matter how much they're paying you by the hour. There's never enough hours in the day to make enough money, right? You, well, you're definitely capped on income at that point. You're capped on uh, income. Because I know bartenders that pull down six figures. I mean, that's, you know, and they're paid two thirteen an hour or something like that today, half minimum, quarter of minimum wage or something like that. I don't know, two seventy an hour. But they work in a very upscale bar or they work in a very upscale restaurant. And between tips and tip out and all of the other things that go along with doing a great job, they'll pull down a six-figure salary. I know one who works at a very kind of exclusive restaurant called Three Forks, that pulls down about $200,000 a year as a head bartender. Mm-hmm. But there's an incentive there. Without that, you're not going to make $200,000 by the hour. You, you, it just doesn't happen. Right. And, and, and I guess even, unless you have an upper-level bureaucratic position and pay yourself, I guess, that's about the only way. And even if you are making that kind of an income, and, and you know, again, even if you're, uh, you know, you're a cardiovascular surgeon or something and you're making $300,000 a year, you gotta you got to think about that. You're not going to be young forever, so at some point you're going to – want to retire or have investment income to live off of, you may become disabled. You may be in a car accident and lose the ability to, to operate on people, right? And there goes your livelihood. So you, you have to be thinking about that business model, too, at all times of, okay, now I'm making a really good income. You know, I'm, I'm that bartender. I'm, I'm at an upscale restaurant. I'm making $100,000. But I'm going to learn and be more than just a bartender. I'm going, to be, I'm going to learn more than just the customer service side of it where people like me and give me big tips. I'm going to learn about how to manage the business. I'm going to learn about handle well profit and loss statement. I'm going to learn about buying the liquor. I'm going to you know, learn about managing people. And you're not doing this so you get promoted in your own organization. You're learning this so you can go out and open your own restaurant or your own bar. Well, then look at, let's look at that for a second, right? So if you did all that, what are your options at some point when you decide, I don't want to be sitting behind the bar anymore? One would be to establish your own bar as an owner. Another would be to go into the business of wholesaling and distribution of liquor and beer and wine. Uh, another would be to maybe set up the type of a rep firm for that, you know, where they bring the, the pretty girls in and tell everybody to try a new thing. I mean, and it just really keeps going from there. That person who's learned all sides of the business from their little beachhead has dozens of options. And probably if they've been good at what they've done for a long time, dozens of relationships that can be put together. Because what, what that makes me think of is what you were just talking about with a doctor and making a lot of money as a surgeon or whatever. Every doctor I know that became really wealthy was a really good business mind that was also a good doctor who found two or three other doctors that were okay business minds and four or five doctors that were great doctors and didn't know jack shit about business and built a practice and eventually exited his practice and sold his practice to his partners. That, that, that's that's, that's, a, that's a, the guy that's worth five, ten, fifteen million dollars today and right, doesn't work anymore. And that's and that's the business model, and that's the same thing you want to do, you know, whether you're a carpenter or you know whether you're the cardiac surgeon. You, you need to figure out how to go beyond your own efforts, how to get paid more than just by the hour or by the job, and and put together that team of people so someday you can either sell it to them, sell it to someone else, um, or or you know just have enough of that cash stream coming in 
that that you can uh, you can live out your life uh, you know long into retirement. So that brings us to stage three, which is develop a passive income. And there's a lot of different types of passive income. The one that most people think of would be portfolio income. You know what? I just remembered where I got to take the job for what you can learn. Rich Dad. Okay, yeah. yeah so I'm rich, sure rich, that rich I can't because the portfolio dad. income thing is from there, too. But that's what most people think. Well, if you have a lot of money, invest in your 401k, and you turn 59 and a half, you start taking money out, and hopefully your money outlasts your life, right? Mm-hmm. But that's only one type of a passive income source. So when you say that, what are you talking about? Yeah, and, when I, and the more I've been talking about passive income to people, I've changed that around. I've gone back to talking about investment income because passive income, people start thinking it's passive. I don't have to do anything, and that's not, it's not a set-it-and-forget-it thing, right? Um, you always have to – you know, Warren Buffett is still actively managing his money. Right? It doesn't matter how, how wealthy you are. You just can't ever forget about it. Um, so along the investment side, um, you're right. The portfolio management side is probably the, the hardest way to get there. Again, going back to the millionaire next door, I think uh, he talks about in there is from his statistics that people making the money in the stock market are uh, very rare. I don't remember if it was if it was less than ten percent or what it was, but it was very 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 small percentage of people that are millionaires. Um, that actually is how I've made my wealth uh, because uh, it wasn't because I relied on somebody else to do it for me. I didn't have a financial planner. I learned how to do that myself, and I enjoyed that. I was passionate about it. I was interested in it, so I made that work for me. But you know, for nine out of ten people, that they're not going to be able to do that. So, so the investment side. Uh, you were talking about the bartender. What options does he have? I, I know a guy that, uh, that that owns a a beauty shop, a beauty salon. He cuts hair. I don't cut hair for probably like thirty years. Um, he knew he didn't want to do that the rest of his life, although he's been doing it forever. Um, so over the years, he started buying real estate, and I don't know. He probably owns more than a, a you know a dozen properties. They're um, kind of um, Entry-level type homes, you know, so they don't cost a whole lot of money. And this isn't the get-rich-quick, uh, you know, no-money-down type thing. I mean, he went out, took legitimate mortgages, bought his first property, um, you know, many, many years ago, uh, learned how to be a, a landlord, learned how to rent, rent things out, learned how to deal with, you know, clogged toilets and, and uh, leaking roofs and things. And when he mastered that, he bought his second home, and then he bought his third home. And, you know, now the guy's in his 50s, and, and he... Yeah, he, he doesn't have to have run his beauty salon anymore if he didn't have to because he has that investment income that's coming in from his real estate. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's, there's, there's so many types of passive income. And I think as soon as you move into the entrepreneurial world and start building a business, it gets harder and harder to put money into a stock or any investment. Because what you do is you look at it and go, okay, if this works out exactly the way that it looks like I'm guessing it will, I can make a 20% return on this. But while I'm doing that, all my capital's tied up, and it's all at risk. And there's things I can do to mitigate risk. I can put in a stop loss. I can, do, uh, I can purchase a, a backside put to ensure the investment. But the money's still sitting there at risk, and it, only, it has only so much potential unless I hit a super home run with an investment. But I look at that same money and go, well, if I capitalize that into my business, then I have control over the investment, and the return tends to have a lot more upside. Or, hey, you know what? I could run a sale this month, and I could make more money on that sale without even using that money than that money is ever going to make me in the market this month, and I have no risk because I've already done the numbers, and I know how much I'm giving up by running the sale versus how much more business it's going to give me. And I think your whole mind just shifts when you get into that entrepreneurial mode. 
Yeah, your, your average uh, millionaire next door, your guy that's kind of your blue-collar millionaire or small business owner millionaire, he has a net worth of uh, you know million and a half, two million dollars. Uh, that guy has uh, say three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars in his home. Right, he doesn't live in a palatial mansion. He lives in a in a nice home, but it's modest by what most people would think that a millionaire would live in. So he's got maybe um, you know three hundred, four hundred thousand. You know, probably. 25% of his income or something less tied into his home. He's got at least half a million or more into his business, half a million, maybe even $700,000 that's into his business. And then he has that other $250,000 is what he would have into his stock portfolio. He, and he's diversified that way. you know. So he owns, he owns his business, he owns real estate, and he owns stocks. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think that that is a much... Um, more intelligent in, passive income stream or investment income stream because one, I don't have everything sitting in one type of investment. And I, they actually had a question you wanted me to ask you, so this is a good time for it. How do you identify financial liars? And I'll just leave it at that. Then I'll then I'll say what I was thinking. Yeah, I, I know that's your term. I know you love to call them financial liars. Um, you know, and and that's that's how I got started in this business to begin with. Close to 30 years ago, when I bought my first stock, I was very—I was still in college. I was scrapping together a couple thousand dollars trying to learn how to invest. And I remember meeting a couple of stockbrokers, and you know those guys didn't have the time of day for me because I had a, a you know a thousand or two dollars. Um, and that, but that really never changed. As I got more and more money, I found that I could never hire the right talents. I could I had not, never had enough money to hire the guy that was really good, and so I had to become really good on my own. And you know, all the way along the path, every time I'd meet these guys, I'd have I'd have a, a bigger net worth than they did, and I'd, and I'd probably know more about investing. They would know more about building relationships. They would know more buzzwords, more industry jargon, that kind of thing. But um, many, many of them. I don't want to, obviously not downgrading the whole industry, but you have to look far and wide to find a really good advisor. And so, what you're looking for is someone that knows how to make you money. And that sounds obvious, but but it's not. Well, and I, I think there's two sides. I think that's an absolute true statement. And the other side that I want out of a financial advisor, and this is where even the ones that can make me money fail, you also want somebody that can protect your underlying investment. Um, so, like, one of the questions I always ask is, what cash position or cash equivalent positions did you have your clients in in 2008 by the summer? And when the answer is, well, you see, it's dollar cost averaging and all, wrong answer, goodbye, go out, done. And unless the answer is, well, yeah, I got hit by that and I learned, and here's what I learned, then I'll listen. Because if you can't protect my money, then you don't get to manage my money or even advise me on how to manage my money. Because my position on that has been, that was the biggest telegraphed financial punch in the face in history. If you couldn't see that coming, you just weren't looking. Yeah, and, and actually, if, if people if you get my website out later on, people can go there. I have a couple uh, blogs on there under uh, um, my uh, commentary and observations that talk about using things like protective puts and give some examples, uh, showing some charts, how some of that might have worked. Um, and that would have worked too, okay, right? Yeah, we didn't go to cash, but here's what we did. We saw it coming, and this is how we hedged. Right, and, that, and that's, that's what I wanted to talk about. In fact, I, one, of my yeah. articles, one of my articles on there is uh, buy and hold is wrong, buy and hedge is right. That's what you, you want to buy and hedge. And that's, that's the, the biggest thing I've learned over the years 
in, in making money. And it, Jack, it's, it's actually extremely easy to make money in stocks. It's extremely easy. Um, but, it's, but it's easier to lose it, <laughs> okay? I mean, you can lose money so fast uh, that, you know, pe- people just don't understand. People that go out and start trying to trade options and don't know about it, you know, I, I've seen statistics where I think, you know, in six months, they've lost all their money there, in six months or less. So you have to know what you're doing, but it, it, but it is extremely easy to make money if you know what you're doing, but the bottom line is you've got you to gotta protect your investments. You've got you to... Gotta, Mark Twain said you have to be more concerned with the return of your principal than the return on your principal. And that's, that's what I do with, with either going to cash or, or uh, uh, hedging, hedging my accounts. Um, and, and 2008 is a perfect example. I, you know, with my own private money that I was managing in 2008, I, was, um, I didn't know that the catastrophe was going to be as bad as it was, but I knew it was coming many years before just by looking at my neighborhood and seeing the people that were moving in that had no money. I knew, yeah. I knew it was going to be a problem at some point. Even my wife, you know, all through 2004, 2005 was going, how the hell are these people buying these houses? And she's like, I don't want to sound, you know, mean or hateful or anything, but you could just look at them and you could just tell based on, you know, the cars they drove and things like that in many instances or, or what have you, that they just were not a person that had a high income. Or you talk to them and go, you know, what do you do? Well, I'm a customer service rep for AT&T and my wife's a stay-at-home mom. That doesn't buy a $250,000 house. I had a neighborhood full of those people, and by 2006, I'd say 25% of the neighborhood was in foreclosure. Um, so you know, I, I saw that stuff coming. It was, it was, it was bad, but again, I, I, I didn't know the impact it was going to have. I didn't know that it meant the market was going to drop like 50%. Um, but but what, I, what I did in 2008, personally, I was, uh, I was in and out of uh, ETFs at the time because I was, uh, I was, I was sort of swing trading. And that's where I really learned about hedging my position because I got greedy right around June. I think it was probably early June of 2008. There's a little bump up in the market, and I, I went all in to, to you know buy it and boom, you know, like the next day it started crashing. And when you get in that position, you, you lie to yourself. Okay, it's not going to get any worse, right? It'll come back tomorrow type thing. And you can just in a very short time lose 20 30% just very easily. So I, I took a big hit. Um, in some ETFs in the summer of 2008, but I was smart enough to know that I got out right away. I didn't sit in there to the bottom and figure out what I was going to do. I got out right away, and I got back in early in 2009, right around March 2009. The first two weeks in 2009, I saw the opportunities. I had been building my watch list, I get, and, I, and I moved out of ETFs at that point and moved into specific stocks that I knew had just gotten beat down because of the situation. And that's really the way the stock market usually works. Your good stocks, everything goes up and down with the market. 75% of a stock's movement is based on the market. So if it's a really lousy market, even the best stocks are going to take some kind of a fall. And that's an opportunity if you didn't lose your ass when they right, came down, right? right? Because right. that's exactly what happens. Oh, it'll be fine. And here's one of my signature moves of a financial liar. When they pull out a chart and they show you the historical performance of the market, and they show you the amazing returns that happen right after a market crashes, and then you ask them a question, well, if the stock market goes down by 50%, and then the next year the market goes up by 40%, uh, or let's say the market goes up by 50% the year after it goes down by 50%, what does that do to my position? And then you get the deer in the headlight looks, because what it does to your position is you still lost half of your loss. Right. A market that goes down by 50% must go up by 100% to recover the loss. And, and that's something that 
the average person that gets set up with these people just doesn't know. And I think that to be fair to the advisors that are out there doing this crap, because I do get hard on them, you've heard me, it's how they're trained. They're not bad guys, it's just how they're trained. My experience has been the really good advisor I can't afford. Or even if I can afford them, they can't afford me. They're like, your net worth's under $2 million, I can't help you. Right, right. And that's and it, a lot of it has to do with regulations. Right, and that's why I had to learn how to do it myself. Um, on my website, I don't talk about the, the about the difference in the when a market goes up and when it comes down. But I have the charts on there so someone can look at that. They can see the S and P and the Nasdaq going back to like since about 1995, and they can see where you know the market crashed. Um, it came down 46 percent in like uh, 2003, 2004. It had to go back up 87 percent in 2006, 2007, just to get back to where it was in 2000. So you know, came, came down 46, but it had to go back up 87. So that's yeah. people can kind of visualize that to see, and and, and invest, investment advisors don't know a lot of that because they're not they're trained in relationship selling. They are they are trained to acquire and and maintain and keep customers. Um, the, the the part about finding a good advisor is to find someone that that again knows, knows how to make you money, knows how to make sure you're not losing money, but he's going to do something more than you know, if all he's going to do is take your money and put it in a mutual fund. You can do that, do that yourself. yourself. Yeah, you can do that yourself really inexpensively. You don't need to pay him 1% or something to do that for you. You can do that with an e-trade account. You can set it up in 15 minutes. Absolutely. You can even do IRAs and, I mean, or SkyTrade or any of these accounts. You can do, And it's actually easier because, I mean, what I dealt with one of my brokers is we'd have a conversation about a particular security, and I'd say, okay, yeah, we're going to put uh, $20,000 into that. And I'd call him Friday and go, so we're in that position, right? Well, I wasn't sure you wanted me to execute the trade. What effing part, and I didn't use the ING version, right, <laughs> of we're going into that security, right, did you not understand? What 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 were you looking for from me? Smoke signals? Right. You know, or, you know, did we sell that particular thing? No. Well, I wanted to be sure you really wanted to do it. Well, when I hit submit on E-Trade, it's I'm done. done. <laughs> it's done, right? It's done. In 10 seconds, it's done. And and, and that's the importance of, uh, of, you know, looking at these stocks and knowing what to do. Because if you can if you can put a floor underneath the downtimes, okay, you know, say you're in the market right now today, and I, I before we started this interview, I think the market was down over one percent, um, you know, but it's been up, it's been up fifteen percent the last uh, you know five months. Maybe you're in the market right now, and if you have that position hedged, say with a, a, a protective put or something, you're limiting yourself. So this fifteen percent you've made in the S and P going up over the last few months. Maybe you're only going to lose three or four percent, even if it crashes, because you've got that protective put that's going to uh, going to say, you know, going to protect your position. So you're going to have your, your equity that way. And then what you do is you just you either short some things, or you're making money while it's still going down, or you just sit things. You know, if you don't know how to do that, that's more sophisticated. If you don't know how to do that, you just ride things out. The market is going to pick up again, and it's not a buy and hold thing where you're in the market. Get out of the market. Well, take that's the take that's cash the point. and write it back up. In 2009, I made you know four to five times what I lost in 2008 because I wrote it up. Well, and there's a point at which you go, okay, this money has made enough money for me that it will now cover my 20 year goal for its, for this money for 10 years. If I'm not a hundred percent sure on what's going to happen next. 
I just need to exit the positions until I know the right investment for that money because I now have banked 10 years of return on that money. Right. And there's no reason for that money to be at risk to get a couple more points on it when that money could be in a very safe, secure position. And I am getting more and more along the lines, too, where I'm trying to get people to think of don't put all of that investment money into these long-term um, vehicles that hold your investments, like 401s and IRAs, because we're looking more and more at the rules changing in there, and that money's very, very public. Yeah, I, I what I encourage people, we talked earlier about, you know, you should be quitting a job every two to five years. You need to do that. You need, you need, when you get the new job, you negotiate the best salary, the highest salary, whatever income you can. And when you leave your old job, you take that money that was in your 401k and you put it into either, if you can afford it, you put it into a Roth IRA, you have to pay the taxes on it. Otherwise, just put it in a self-directed IRA, traditional IRA. And again, you do that over your three or four career moves and over 20 years, now you have this retirement account that's built up that you are controlling. You don't have three or four options that's in your 401k plan. You're, you have a Schwab account or an E-Trade account and you have millions of opportunities. And over that 15 or 20 year period, you've, you've learned how to invest. So, you know, now you're, 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 you know, you not only have more money, but you have more wisdom and you're able to invest that money. And that's, you know, if that time value of money, that's how you're going to make, uh, that investment income we're talking about. If you're just in your, 30s and you only have twenty thousand dollars, you're not going to make very much investing in that. But if you're in your fifties and now you have three or four or five hundred thousand dollars, you can make a lot of money investing in that. There's a lot of people I do hear from that are young and they have maybe four or five thousand dollars and they want to know what to invest it in. And my answer is generally nothing. Yeah, save it. Keep adding to it. it what are you going to do other than lose it? Because if you make ten percent on on two thousand dollars, you've made what two hundred bucks. Yep. And the time you'll spend stressing out over what to do with that $2,000, you could have made more than $200 in some else. That, that's a top advice I would give to someone that doesn't have um, a, a fairly substantial nest egg. Is, you know, in, the, in your example you just gave, okay, you're going to spend a lot of time and effort getting a 10% return on your money, and you only made $200. So maybe you should have just cut the cable, right? Because you'd save 100 bucks a month or something if you just disconnect your cable TV. Um, you know, go get a second job. It, be a better, you know, do what we talked about earlier, be an entrepreneur, um, study the, the job you're at now, spend time learning more at the job you're at so you can get paid more money, so you can build your own business model, so you can start your own business someday. Don't don't fret about five or $10,000 investments because it's, it's just, you have to start there, obviously, but the time and effort you put into that isn't going to make you money until you start getting you know, I'd say if you had two grand, if you had two grand, you'd be better off pretending you were back in high school and managing a shadow fake portfolio. What would have happened if, while you work your ass off, so that when you have money to the point where it's worth investing, you have the same experience as though you were actually investing money, and now you can go actually do something with real money. And the losses that you took in the meantime that you learned from didn't cost you jack crap. Right. Yep. Learn, learn on paper first. Read read books. Get educated. Again, we talked about the internet. I mean, it's everything. You go to you can go to a Yahoo Finance. I mean, there's a million sites out there. I started using Yahoo Finance, you know, many many years ago, so I, I still use that quite a bit. But there is more free information, more timely information there than you know Warren Buffett ever had before he made his first hundred billion. I mean, it's just 
all the information's there. there there's uh, programs that you can you can mock trade on. Um, I will say though that until you really have skin in the game, it's not as as effective as if you're just doing it on paper. Sure. When you're sure. really pushing that button, right? You're buying that stock and it's costing you two thousand dollars. You you take it a whole lot more seriously. But yeah, they do. And, and the beauty the beauty about the investment side of it, and particularly what I've always been attracted to with stocks, and I, I knew this as a little kid, it just took me a lot of years to figure out how to put into a business model for myself, was that it's scalable. You, know, you always, as you're building your business and as you're looking for that ultimate passive income, you want to start things that are scalable. So if I learn how to invest $2,000 in the stock market and I get really good at it, then if I would have had $2 million, that same principle would have applied. And so... If I can learn how to consistently get a 10% return on $2,000, so, and, and I can build that up to where I do have a significant portfolio, you know, now I'm making $200,000 a year or $150,000 a year, and that's, you know, that's a substantial income. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So you mentioned earlier that you got one of your kids to pay for their own college, and on your notes here I said, you see, I've had three of your own kids pay their, pay their own way through college. How do you do that? Because that's... That's good advice because that's, you know, for the average person that, that funds their child's education, it's a significant portion of what could have been their own retirement. Yeah, I've been, uh, I've been fortunate in that I've had good kids so far. I have a large family. I have six children, so, so, so far I'm, I've had at least three of them do really well. The fourth one's looking pretty good. I don't know about those last two, you know. <laughs> they, uh, we'll see how good they do. Hopefully they will. But I, I think with, with kids you have to build expectations up front from day one. And, and that's not only about saving for their education, but, you know, what they want to do for their life, how they're going you know, to live the rest of their life. They need to know that they have to work for things and they have to have that expectation. So you can put it in their mind that they're going to pay for school. I remember my daughter, uh, my uh, my daughter, it's in, she's still in school right now. She's, she'll graduate, uh, I think, in, Dece- in December this year. Um, but she, I remember her telling me, you know, Dad, there, there's kids at school that their parents pay for everything. I'm like, yeah. Really? No, there's people that do that. You know, she's, she's like, you know, 20 years old before she figured that out. She thought you yeah. just had to, you just had to do that. So you put that expectation in there, but then you, you know, then you help them achieve that. My kids have um, have always found a way to work, whether it was, you know, babysitting or refing soccer, um, or you know, just just different odd jobs. Start them out a little in the house where they have a chore to do, and you know, then they cut the grass and they kind of build up from there, and then pretty soon they. They figure they can make more money working for somebody else, and they can't work for dad. And and you would be surprised if, if kids are taught how to save money, how much money they can build by the time they're 19 years old. Well, they can build a substantial. Yeah, here's one way we did things. We basically had this rule with you know because every birthday, Christmas, holiday, everything a kid has, there's relatives that give kids money. So we had a rule. First of all, you don't really need money. Let's just accept that. You, your house is paid for. We drive you everywhere you need to go. You don't pay for gasoline. You don't pay for electricity. You don't pay for cable. You don't pay for internet. You don't need money, which resulted in kind of a sad, pouty face. Don't worry. We're not taking your money away. We're just establishing the fact that you don't need money right now in your life. You have everything you need provided. So the only thing you use for money is what you want. So we have a rule. All the money that comes in like that will get divided in immediately in half. And half of that money goes into long-term savings for you basic savings account in bank, right? And that money will be there for you when you're an adult to do anything you want to with. But that money's just immediately gone from the spending equation. Now, the money that's left will take half of it 
and you can buy anything you want with that money. You can do it's your money. You can buy gum. You can buy Snickers bars. I don't care what. And then the other half of that that money. So now we're at twenty five percent blocks goes into a jar. This is your savings jar. You can use that money for anything that you want to, but you have to think about it for seven days before you do. That worked fabulously. Yeah, we we did some very similar. And in fact, you're more generous. I didn't I didn't give them the the first twenty five percent. There, all they got was twenty five percent. And and they had and they had to wait. That was it. If you can wait. You know, it depends on what, what age they are, but you know, when they're really young, maybe it's only a day or something. But they had to wait a certain uh, a day or a week because generally, yeah. in 48, 48 hours, they wanted something else, and so the, the they clock, didn't want that one anymore. Yeah, the, the, the it wasn't and, important, and, and the clock got reset. You know, the clock. It, it worked too good for us. There was, you know, because my son tends bars, so there's a lot of cash tips and stuff like that. And when he first started doing it, eventually, we started finding these big cups of money, and we're like, dude, at some point, you need to take that cash and put it in the bank. Today, actually, I'd say you need to go buy a safe. Um, I, I, banks are. I, I don't see a huge value in having a lot of cash in the bank anymore because what are you going to get one third of one percent interest on it? You, you, you but it's like you can't just leave it in a cup anymore. You're not six. It's not fifteen bucks now. You know. Um, and we did. You know, I, I found like a cup with like five hundred bucks in it one day, and I'm yeah. like, you, you shouldn't have. And he was in his teens. You know, I'm like, you shouldn't. And it was before he was even uh, attending bar. He was just doing to go orders and and and, and waitstaff stuff. And I'm like, you you can't just leave money like this laying around. But that's where it can't. It's one of those things you have to like, like pay attention to because you've taught them something and they just keep doing it. And but that's a testament to the fact that it works. Right. Exactly. And and yeah, Bernanke's made no incentive for people to save anymore. And I'll tell you a big mistake too. I did uh, early on with my kids to put things in five twenty nine plans, which mm. I don't I don't recommend because although it too. it's so tax, stupid, they're tax deferred. But and I don't know if this is the way with all the plans, but the ones I was always in where you can only make one investment decision a year, one choice a year. Yeah. You talk about buy and hold, that's just ridiculous. And you're better off paying the taxes. Well, you, you don't know where your five-year-old's going to go to college. No. And there's things that money can't be used for that are legitimate educational expenses that anybody with a brain other than a bureaucrat would go, that's okay. My son considered going to helicopter school. He didn't go, but he considered it. When we looked at using the money from the 529A, The answer was yeah, you can use it if you pay all the interest and penalties on it. Uh, you can you can take it out as any type of cash withdrawal and use it. But it was not a qualified um, distribution from a 529A to pay for going to pilot school because it wasn't an accredited you know university. Right, it's got to got to be in what they want. And if, you, and if your kid decides to do these entrepreneurial things we're talking about, that money gets gets wasted. You have to pay a penalty on it. Um, You know the saving, saving, and the making money that the kids have to do. You know, that's kind of half the equation. They, they've got to learn how to make money. They've got to learn how to save it. But the other half or third of that equation is going to a school that's reasonably priced. They're, uh, you know, my, my kids were never geniuses where they were going to go to Stanford or something, anyways. But they got good, solid educations at uh, either inexpensive private schools or you know state schools. Uh, believe me, they weren't spending. Fifty thousand dollars a year on an education, and that's why it made it affordable for them to be able to fund their own education because they had saved money. They were able to, you know, buy their first couple semesters with the money they'd saved at least, and then during summer breaks and stuff, they weren't fooling around. They weren't going to Hawaii on vacation. They had jobs and they worked, and they made enough money over the summer to pay for their next uh, semester. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so the next thing I have for you is on the debt side of the equation. 
because there's a lot of people that are big and savvy on this investing, but they're also big and savvy on debt. I can't tell you how my, you know, how many financial advisors I talked to where I talked about pulling out some money to purchase something. Said, oh, just get a home equity loan. It's a low interest rate, and you can do it as a tax write off. And I'm like, you know, I really don't think we need to work together anymore. Um, so, what are your thoughts on debt? Yeah, personally, I'm I'm a I'm a Dave Ramsey guy on on, on debt. I believe in being debt free. Uh, my wife and I have. Uh, lived that way from the, the day we were married. You know, we never had a credit card bill. If we couldn't pay at the end of the month, we, we didn't buy it. Uh, we we bought, bought a home with a mortgage. Obviously, we did go in debt to buy a home. But uh, when we got to the point where we could pay that off, we paid that off. And I, I know how to make money in the market, but I still, personally, I like the security of, of having my home paid for. And, and I don't look at my home as an investment. I just look at it as it, it's, it's another form of hedge for me, right? It's, I, I have that equity in there. Um, I don't have to worry about it. It's it's just money that's put away. That money that I would be paying for principal and interest, I'm investing that. Um, so I'm a big believer in eliminating as much debt as you can. I personally have only ever had one car payment in my life, and I, I regretted that and ended up paying it off early. Um, you know, we we have always lived well within our means, and again, getting back to the millionaire next door. That's how those millionaire next doors are doing it. The, the two biggest expenses that people get trapped into are, are their home and the vehicle. And you don't want to be house poor. Um, you, you can look at a lot of people that have high incomes. They're living in these million-dollar homes. Yeah, they're making $200,000 a year, but at the end of the month, they don't have any more money than the guy that, that's making $50,000 a year because you know, they're broke. they got a big house. You know, they got to pay somebody to clean the pool. they got to pay... Somebody cut the grass, I mean, it just it, it just adds up. They got to have a nicer car because they live in a nice neighborhood. Uh, so you just get into that consumption routine instead of building wealth. Uh, uh, Thomas Stanley in that in the book in, in uh, Millionaire Next Door, he talks about the, the successful millionaires that he met never paid more than two to three times their income on a home, or even better yet, their take-home pay. So you know that doesn't sound like a lot of money, but that's really where you need to be if you want to save some significant income because if you get into a three or four or five hundred thousand dollar mortgage it's going to eat you a lot that's money that you could be putting into more productive means if, you, if you're making fifty thousand dollars you know you, you don't want to be living in more than 150 you don't want to mortgage is more than hundred fifty thousand dollars yeah I, I completely agree with that i i think that that we have been sold a lie that your home is your best investment and that's right up until the point that you need to exit that investment and you can't. You know, you can you can make that case right up until okay, well, we have what we think is three hundred thousand dollars worth of equity in a seven hundred thousand dollar house, but we can't sell it for enough to recapture any of that equity or half of that equity because it's not real; it's phony equity, and the market just corrected and demonstrated that. And if to me, an investment is fairly liquid. Right. If I when I'm talking about an actual cash investment, like you can make a case for tools being investment. I do it all the time. But when it comes down to it, something that I'm holding monetary value in and I'm basing as a monetary. So I'm putting money into that house every single month. If I can't reasonably quickly exit that position and convert it back into capital, it's not an investment. It's a liability. Yes, absolutely. And, and if it's something like a vehicle that's, that's really depreciating every month, it's, it's even worse. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. It, when, when people think of their, their net worth, 
and then again to the doctor that's making two three hundred thousand dollars a year or whatever some corporate executive that's making two three hundred thousand dollars a year um, but he belongs to the country club and he has the really high price mortgage and he's got three really nice cars he's got a special when he drives on weekends and um, all the teeth easy the TFEs and stuff he plays to play, play golf. He has no money, so he has he's a high income earner, but he has no net worth. Um, a good way to figure out where you should be with your net worth is to take your age, divide it by ten, and then multiply that by your income. So again, if you made like fifty thousand dollars a year and you were thirty five, you should have a net worth of like one hundred seventy five thousand dollars. That's kind of a expected net worth. If you're significantly less than that. You need to kind of reassess where you're spending your money and figure out how you can save more. And then as you get significantly over that, then you know that you someday when you're in your late 40s or early 50s, you're going to be a millionaire. Yeah. Yeah. It's not it's not a way to look at it. It's not get rich quick. You know, it's it's find something you're really good at. Do it well. Learn how to serve and you know provide people with a product and a service that they want. And, and be frugal with your income. And you're not frugal so you're cheap. You're frugal so that you can you can do things with it. You have the money to have independence and the freedom you want. You have the money to help other people. You have the money to help your community. It's it's a good way to live. So the person that's hearing this is saying, well, this sounds better, but I've been living conventionally, let's say, for the past 20 years. Uh, it has a modest income or a, even a decent income, upper middle class income. What are like, your initial steps for that person to get started? Yeah, they and that kind of goes, again goes back to that that some of that Dave Ramsey stuff. They need to get out of debt. They need to figure out. And I don't care how they do the snowball or whatever it doesn't makes no difference to me. I know Dave gets all wrapped up in different things. They just need to figure out how to get out of debt, um, pay off those credit cards. That's the worst. Um, figure out how they're gonna they gotta get that mindset of I'd rather be wealthy than I'd rather be flashy, right? So maybe they have to sell their car. Uh, maybe they have to keep their car for ten or fifteen years. Uh, but but they need to scale back their lifestyle. Again, maybe they, the the worst thing they it wouldn't be the worst thing for them to do to unplug their cable and quit watching TV. You know, save hundred dollars a month on their cable bill. Um, just you know, reassess their life and look at these things we've talked about. Is how can I start saving money and how can I put that money to use? Whether it's through investing in the stock market or whether it's through starting my own business. How can I be entrepreneurial? Um, kind of kind of broad general there, but. You know, again, we get back to where I was at in 1996. Um, I had a net worth of maybe $70,000. I was always a good saver, so I never had to worry about that. Um, and I was a pretty good income producer, but I just I switched around enough jobs where I, I, I wasn't being paid as high as I should have been. I figured out how to do that when I was around 35, so I drastically improved my income. And at the same time, I really buckled down on my passion, which was investing. And so in you know, 12, 13 years, I went from from kind of being uh, not knowing what I was doing to being financially independent. And and I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, right? If I can do this, other people can do it. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that as well. So you actually uh, assist people with this to a degree? You have a website people can learn more about this all on? Well, I have a website that people can go and learn more just about in general building wealth. Um, I have started just recently here, started my own uh, advisory firm, um, and people can see information about that on the website. But the, the website is more about um, strategies and trends and uh, learning how to build wealth. And that's only been up about a, a month and a half now. So not, not a whole lot of content, but it, it will build from here. 
Awesome. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with us today, John, and sharing your uh, your views on this. I think it was very informative, and I think we've got a, uh, a way that a lot of people maybe can, can get a new way of looking at the concept of investment wealth and building wealth in their lives. And that's certainly a survival topic because I don't know about you, but most of the things in my life uh, either come with a cost or if I've set up self-sufficient systems so that I don't have to have a recurring cost, there was an initial cost to build that system. Yes, and it's not only about survival; it's just about right. You want to you want to have that emergency fund. You want to have your water storage, your food storage, all those things, of course. But you want to have your wealth build up. So we're all going to get hopefully we're all going to get old someday, and you can't work the rest of your life. You want to have income built up so you can enjoy your your uh, years and then hopefully continue working right till the day you die, not because you have to, but because you want to. But you, you need that wealth built up so you can buy your personal freedom. You don't you want to depend on the government for Social Security or Medicare or any of that kind of stuff. You need to try and take care of yourself as best as you can. That's the ultimate in survival. All right, man. Well, I uh, appreciate you being here with us again today. Again, folks, the website is investablewealth.com. And with that, this has been Jack Spearco today along with John Pugliano, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
shoot.